He was the NBC Nightly News anchor for 22 years. He was on the air. Most of us saw him on the air on September 11, 2001, because he was on the air for 14 hours, I want to say. It's Tom Brokaw on the phone. Tom, thanks for joining us tonight. We appreciate it. I'm glad to be uh, in Chicago once again on, on the air. Where were you when you heard the news on 9-11 that morning? Well, it was an odd beginning. I was getting my first really difficult weight-bearing yoga lesson that my wife insisted on, and it's 55 minutes into it. I was looking for any way to get out of there. When the phone rang, and they said, some kind of a small plane is at the World Trade Center. So I got dressed, dashed out into the street in, in upper Manhattan. It was election day. It was a beautiful, sunny day, and no one had any idea what was going on down there. I jumped in a cab. About halfway down, a well-known radio reporter in the city, Art Athens, said, I'm in Washington Square Park. A second plane has just roared over the top of me and into the other tower. And I thought, we're at war. And I called my wife, who was out in Montana, and said, better get up and start watching. I don't know when we can talk. Went directly to the Today Show, and as you say, I was on actually, I think, um, 15, 16 hours probably that day. And as I said to Matt, I was on the Today Show this morning with Matt again, and what was unique about that was that we had no idea what would happen in the next nanosecond. It was all so unexpected. It was extraordinarily a surprise attack. So when you have a war coming, you kind of build up to that, or you see weather systems develop for big weather problems. This one, mm-hmm. we had no, we had no idea where it was coming from, what they were up to, and I just counseled my colleagues, don't speculate. We're just going to report what we know, right. know for sure. So that's, that's how the day went. How did you keep it together once the news started coming in and all the people that were trapped inside the uh, World Trade Center? How do you keep it together? It was not easy. I, um, when the first, when the tower began to collapse, two, I think, was the first one to go, I, uh, we thought that there might be as many as 15,000, 20,000 people in there. And I have an Irish gene. My mother was a Connolly from County Mayo, and I, it does well up from time to time. And I, but adrenaline is a strong drug. The only time that day that I did have some real difficulty, I had a man on the phone who had just gotten out, and he had left behind uh, 490 some of his co-workers who were confined to wheelchairs have spinal cord injuries. And spinal cord injury is something that I've dreaded all my life, and I do a lot of work with Nick Monacani and the Miami Project. And that got to me, that these poor souls confined to their wheelchairs waiting for the elevator that never came. And I had to hand off to somebody else and kind of compose myself. I don't know how you did it. Mr. Brokaw, and everybody always says, well, I was glued to my TV that day. You witnessed every image that came across the screens at NBC nonstop for hours upon hours upon hours. Is there a moment that still affects you to this day? The, the, the grandiosity of it all affects us all. But for you, is there something you witnessed or reported that still sticks with you today? Yeah, well, two large, I mean, one large and one smaller one. One was the large one was when the towers began to go down. That took us to a whole different level. And then later in the day, we had crews out downtown, and there was this uh, anguished mother in gray hair holding a sign saying, has anybody seen Tommy Smith? And Tommy Smith, it turns out, was a member of a family, the only one to go to college, kind of a pudgy kid we saw in home movies who had gotten a job, I believe, at Morgan Stanley. And he was the pride of the family, mm-hmm. a working-class family. And it was so devastating for them to have lost him. 
And I then did a follow-up that I wanted to know more about them. And um, turns out one of the sons was a big Green Bay Packers fan, and Brett Favre will always have a place in my heart because I didn't know him. I wrote to him, and I said, could you send something? And he sent an entire package of stuff to this this man. But that family, everybody who suffered a loss suffered it greatly, obviously. That family, this was the one son who had gone to college and was on his way, and they lost him. We're talking with uh, Tom Brokaw. I saw your piece today on uh, search dogs on the uh, nightly news. It was interesting how you brought that dog back to um, ground zero and how he reacted. Well, I'm a big dog person. I have Labradors, which are also good at that kind of thing because they're trained as bird dogs. For the most part, they have great sense. And that golden retriever that we saw there today is part of an expanding population of search dogs across the country because they have this unique ability and this deep scent. And that dog didn't find any live bodies, unfortunately. But what they do is they go and sniff and sniff. And if they get a strong scent, they begin to bark. They put in long hours, and uh, it's a very tiring thing. But the relationship that Denise had with Brittany, I think, was pretty self-evident on the screen. And I, I completely get that. I, you know, I have a, a dog now out in Montana, Red, that, you know, it's just my favorite companion outside of my wife. I always make that clear. But I do also <laughs> say to my wife, he loves me better than he loves you. Do do understand that. So. And uh, later that month, talk about a crazy time, but later that month, you received a letter containing anthrax. I did. I did. And uh, that was a horrendous experience for me and for the people who worked for me. There were two developments that really didn't get very much attention. It was opened by an intern out in the outer office, and she wisely, there was just some brown powder, and she dumped it into a waste basket that had a plastic lining, got sealed, and carried away. And then the letter with residue came into my office. And I had a fair-skinned uh, Irish-American secretary who a couple of days later said, you know, I've developed some kind of a, a rash thing, and I'd gotten a letter with some, it turned out to be talcum powder on it when we tested it. So she'd sent that out for testing. Her husband's a cop. And it came back negative. And, but she said, this thing, you know, it's growing. So I sent her to a couple of doctors in New York and dermatologists, and they said, well, it's a brown reclusive spider bite. That honestly is what they said it was. She didn't make any sense. I haven't been out in the garden or anything. It seemed to be diminishing because she was on a drug. And then she came back on Monday, and I said, how are you doing? And her friends took her into the restroom and looked at it. It was over her bust area. And they came back and said, this is, you know, this is not going down. So we have a favorite tropical diseases doctor in town because I go to those crazy places all the time. Right. She knew him. She knew him and trusted him to Kevin Cahill. I sent her up to Kevin. Kevin said, I cannot rule this out. He was the only one in New York that we found who had ever seen cutaneous anthrax. We then sent the samples to the CDC and to Fort McKendrick down in Maryland, Fort McKendrick, the, the Army of Infectious Diseases place. That came back negative. The CDC worked through the night, and on Thursday morning, Friday morning early, I got a call from the police commissioner saying, do you have a secretary who's got a problem? She's got anthrax. It had taken 10 days for us to track this down. At the time of 9-11, I happened to be living up in Canada. And I only mention that as a matter of fact because it was Canada that took in literally thousands of flights that were still airborne at the time of the attacks and allowed them to land at the various airports all the way from the Maritimes all the way out to the West Coast and on into Vancouver, B.C. Have you ever seen a time in history, other than, of course, World War II, where really the world rallied around the United States and and 
presented a united front in wanting to help us out? No, I never have, and I think it was a, uh, I think it was a lost opportunity. The country really did come together, and then it was quickly divided. By the way, I did a story for the um, for the Olympics uh, at BC on Gander, which was an old refueling stop during World War II, and they took in 700 transatlantic flights that day, offloaded the passengers, put them in homes, gave them free prescriptions because they had to leave the luggage on board free clothing, free food for three days. There was one and maybe two marriages that came out of the ordeal. And uh, and there's a scholarship fund now that the passengers put together for the children of Gander, which is in Nova Scotia, and it's a working-class town. It was a wonderful story. And when we put it on the air, Americans had no idea of what had happened in Gander. And they were, they were so touched by it. And, of course, the Canadians, who never get enough attention from us, were just overjoyed. Tom, uh, I think of you often because my neighbor is a World War II vet who saw combat and his ship was shot down by a kamikaze pilot. His name is Marty Buscemi, 93 years old. And one of the things that I've learned living next to Marty the last six years is he's very humble, very humble. I asked him about they the times. 90% of them were <laughs> humble. It's it's just amazing. I'm, I, Marty, tell me what it was like. You know, this is what we did. We fought for our country. And that's what we did back yeah. then. Very, very humble man. Well, it's, you know, there were some great, great stories in the Chicago area that we did the lead story. And the, the greatest generation was about a Chicago man who, who was shot and was blinded and then led a wonderful life. And uh, then a whole other number of stories. I just got back from Normandy, 70. And we keep thinking we're going to run out of stories. But, of course, there were 400,000 people involved, and all of them had one story after another. And, and so it is inspirational, and I hope it resonates across the generations. That they came out of the Depression when there was so little hope, and they all had to share and find common cause. If you look at the induction ceremonies in 1941-42, they look like they're half-starved. These were people who didn't have enough to eat every day. Mm -hmm. When I'd ask them, well, what was it like in basic training? They'd say, never had a breakfast like that. My God, I got my first new pair of boots. I didn't have any hand-me-down trousers. I got new trousers. So they went from that experience into the war where they had to take the same qualities, the same values of working together, mission-oriented, save the world, came home, thrilled with the new opportunities because of the GI Bill and the industrial buildup in America. And didn't pump their chest and say, you owe me, you owe me, you owe me. Right. I mean, think about that line. They saved the world, they came home, and then they went to work. That's what yeah. they did. There was a guy in Michigan who had been gone for four years. family owned a small grocery store. He got home at 10 in the morning, and by 1 o'clock in the afternoon, he was apron on, he was behind the meat park. It's, it's, that's, that's what they do. And I, I have a nine-year-old, and I constantly tell him, Marty is a hero. And I explain, I try to explain the war to him, not in too much detail, but I, I tell him that Marty and his friends saved the world. They did. We're uh, talking with Tom Brokaw. Tom, I got to ask you, how are you feeling? Because you had cancer and you went through treatments and they seemed to work. They did. I, I, I talked about it some on the Today Show this morning. I'm not done done, but I'm uh, in the final lap, it appears. I, I was diagnosed in August a year ago, completely blindsided, but I've had a very healthy life. I'm the luckiest guy I know. And the best phrase that came to me immediately was a renowned specialist in multiple myeloma. He said, this is a nasty disease. Some other people were kind of polyandrous. Oh, you'll be back on your feet in nine months. It was a tough, tough year. 
and I was blessed with having access to, to great doctors. I've got resources. I can pick up the phone and get who I want. There are eight doctors in our family. My wife should have been one of them. She was my pharmacist. She was my sheriff. She was my cheerleader. And there were some really long, difficult passages. But I was determined not to complain because I knew that I was in a much better place than most people who got this kind of thing. And I had faith that if I followed the rules, that I was going to work my way out of it. I made some adjustments along the way, and now I'm down to one marker that we need to get to zero, zero, and that's what I'm in the course of doing at the moment. And when we get that to zero, zero, I think in about six weeks, then I go on a drug maintenance program. I'll be like a diabetic. I'll take a pill a day every day for the rest of my life. I'll have my 95% of my life back. I'm... Um, I'm I'm feeling much stronger now. I've got my legs are getting me back in shape, and I'm able to walk many blocks at a time. It really did uh, knock me down. I lost thirty pounds in about uh, three and a half weeks. Wow, thirty pounds! I mean, that's yeah. A lot. And then I had so much back pain I could barely walk. I would walk with a cane or a walking staff because it had compression fractures. It's a bone and blood cancer, and you know, I was determined not to whine. Uh, there were some days when I was tempted to. I walk out in the middle of the winter time from our apartment when I could barely move. There was this big bus stop poster of Tom Brady in his Ugg boots, looking every inch of Tom Brady. And I would look up at him and I would say the F word, you. And, and that would kind of give me a lift. And I would keep on going. So I met him at the freak this summer. And I and I'd never met him before, and I took him aside and was his posse, and I said, "Look, I was diagnosed with cancer." He said, "Oh my God!" I said, "No, I'm I'm gonna be okay, and you helped me." Because <laughs> I cursed I at your billboard every morning when I walked out of my house. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, I love it, Tom Brokaw. Tom, I, I I can't say thanks enough for coming on tonight. Uh, we we talked about who we wanted to have on to uh, talk about nine eleven, and we all said we want to get Tom Brokaw back on the show. And we sincerely appreciate it. We've all uh, been rooting for you the last year, and we're glad you're doing better. Well, I'm doing much, much better, and I'm so mindful of the people who do get far more serious cases of cancer, don't have the access or the resources that I do, and I I have a whole different take on that now. It's not enough just to say, uh, gee, I hear you got cancer. I'm really sorry about that. You have to figure out ways that you can relate to those folks as well. So it's, it's, it's a monstrous disease. And I thank you all very much, and uh, love coming back to Chicago. All right. Thank you, Tom. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye. Tom Brokaw, everybody.